is our advisory content correspondent, Stefan. This show, this show has everything. Coming up next, it's a movie where two guys secretly have homoerotic tensions. It has a human organic wheat field. That's What's when, that? It's when you throw grain at a fascist, and then several years later, you throw horse manure all over him. And when you run out of horse manure, you massage the horse's assholes so that they poop more, and then you smear it all over the fascist's face. Oh my god. Allora benvenuti a Radio Super Energia. Adesso ragazzi e ragazze presentiamo la presente sensazione la nuova banda svedese di House Refuse con la fortissima canzone Refuse Party Program Hardcore Techno Mega Mix. The silent painting shows a crowd in a moving conversation barely held below a chatter. The hands gesture everywhere asking for something. The hands that work together or fight or hang outstretched and questioning. Welcome to the Pointless Century. The world's only anti-fascist comparative literature seminar distributed in podcast form. Where we discuss history, culture, and politics to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Today's episode is the third of a series wrapping up our discussion of Bernardo Bertolucci's film Novecento or 1900. I like the Joker says, let's expand our minds, boys. If I were over at Paramount and they were like, how are we going to get people to watch this movie? I'd be like, re-release it as like a five or six part Netflix series and people will love it. Yeah, yeah, that could work. And in its day, that's not exactly what it would be like but it was released in two sections, two long sections, admittedly. Mm-hmm. But back in the 60s and 70s in Italy, people went to the movies a lot more like people watch TV today. So they had a sort of less serious engagement with it and they'd maybe you know go for like all of Saturday, they watch a few movies. It's the kind of movie that it doesn't really work well as a movie. <laughs> but, but it could, it could under the right circumstances. It uh, could. Cut it up. I'm sure that I used to watch this end to end in the middle of the day when I had nothing to do. But like now I'm more busy than I've ever been in my life. Well, like yeah. Insane. Yeah, um, that's understandable. The advice this episode, like the past two, deals with a number of triggering issues, including suicide and sexual assault. Anita uh, sadly just dies off between part one and part two. Um, yeah. As she's in childbirth and we get her daughter, Anita. And then Atla becomes a much more important character. But you gotta admit, Donald Sutherland does do a good job. He is brilliant. And like that sort of like seething, sneering, like, I know what's up kind of delivery. Donald Sutherland always does a great job. I initially knew him as Snow from The Hunger Games. But then once I was older, I realized he was also the dad in the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. I remember him the best with his villain roles. It's always either villain roles or slacker roles. Uh, I think that he made his name first off in these like weird like war movie slacker roles that you see. Do we want to talk about the shit in this movie? God. <laughs> so they like literally smear him with shit and like the massaging of the horse. Oh, no! Assholes. 
And then if that wasn't enough, describing it later on, like what happened? And then they massage the horse's assholes and then okay, and they're like praying to God for the poop and it's it's (laughs) deeply, deeply weird. You remember in that last scene with the elder Alfredo before he uh, decides to try and get this uh, girl to touch his dick, he takes his <laughs> shoes off and mashes them around in the shit. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was confused He gives this long monologue about milk and shit, milk and shit. You were confused by that? It does not make perfect sense? It, it does, but at first I was confused by it. There's a certain earthiness to the peasant that's like very exalted here and in a lot of what we might call workerist literature and art, whether or not it's literally communist, we could call it workerist if it's valorizing the peasant and the working class. Mm-hmm. And here we get that image of the good patrone, again in quotes, because he literally <laughs> does molest a girl in this scene. The good patrone is in contact with the earth, in contact with the cows, in contact with the shit, in contact with the milk, and in contact. Sadly enough, we might say, with with the peasants themselves. The peasants, (laughs) the same kind of people who are like, oh, we don't have enough shit to smear on this fascist. I guess we better rub these horses' assholes because if if we do it the right way, and I I assure you, we know how to do it the right way. Uh, We... (laughs) We know they'll shit and then we'll have more shit and better shit, like wetter, less dried up shit to spear all over yeah. this fascist's face. Fresh. Fresh shit for the fascists. They only get the best. Is this a realistic movie? Because like, I am so deeply tempted to die on the hill of this movie is dead on what it would be like to live in some buttfuck farm town between 1901 and 1945. I feel like there's something that's so real about this that it makes no sense to us. That's how real it is. But also, I feel like I'm probably a fool. Wait, what was the question? We don't, have to, we don't have to like, <laughs> oh, okay. like no, go literally gonna... through like, is this dead on realist, fact for fact? Do you think it feels like it would have felt to live through this? We don't really know. Nobody really knows. But we what's your sense? Know. We don't know, but... In some ways, yes. In other some ways, aspect. no. In the ways that I feel like it would be realistic is kind of their overall attitude or the way that they're portrayed is like, it's just very blunt. I think I respect that. Their attitude? But, you mean the attitude of the peasants? The attitude of the fascists? Both? I think just the attitude of the whole span of time that's portrayed in this film. Not singling out any one group. I don't know what ways it doesn't seem realistic to me. It just gives off a certain vibe, I guess. Yeah. I think the most unrealistic thing is the lasting relationship between Alfredo and Olmo. Yeah, it'd be plausible when you're kids, but as Alfredo was being raised to be a patrone, he's totally going to go away from his friend. They're totally going to grow apart. It's going to be a power complex, and there is, but like, it's not realistic for it to last. Well, the thing is that they do grow apart, but I don't think that Alfredo realizes. Yeah, but they're still together, like they're still wrestling at an old age. Yeah. I thought that was cheesy. The ending is cheesy, no doubt. It's stupid. But the ending is, or well, we'll get into the, the ending and whether it's necessary and what it means in a minute. But uh, yeah, it's cheesy. That 
the thing that I also like stylistically about this film is the way that history progresses and the way that certain ideas and things that are presented throughout this film. The characters actually move through different seasons, which I thought was interesting. And then you can compare that to the changes of time, but also how we change as people. That doesn't connect to anything. I just well, we change as people, and we have the freedom to become the people that we want to become. But also, we don't have freedom in that, like, we become the people that we mm-hmm. are born to become, like mm-hmm. Alfredo. Alfredo yeah, doesn't want to become his father, but he does, you know. Yeah. And I think that he perceives himself as continuing to be Olmo's friend, but then even Olmo himself says the Patrone are our enemies. They need to be destroyed. Like he understands that even if I grew up with this other kid, we are locked in a class struggle. This is war between the two of us. Yeah. And it's literal war in this era. It's not like conceptual war. It's not like the war that his parents and his grandparents saw. It's become an actual war, like a world mm-hmm. war. And, and on the ground, a persecution level war. Liberalism likes to tell itself a story about fascism, which is that fascism is a movement that seeks to destroy all other ideologies and that the hope that liberalism offers is the hope of many ideologies. And that when the fascist threat came along, liberalism rose to the occasion and all different political ideologies banded together and fought against fascism and ensured a liberal second half of the 20th century. That's a fucking lie. This story tells it more truthfully in that, yes, of course, fascism was and continues to be antagonistic towards any kinds of ideology that is not fascism, but it is primarily, initially, and fundamentally opposed to socialism and opposed to communism. It is a reactionary movement that is constructed with the main intent of targeting the left wing. We see that in Italian fascism, We see that most obvious, perhaps, in Spanish fascism. And we see that also in Nazism, where the longstanding anti-Semitic claim that leftist politics are somehow being manipulated by Jewish people allows the sort of collapse down of political enemies into a set of ethnic enemies. Something that eventually happened in Italy, but happened a little bit later. This movie, as I said, tells it the way that I believe is actually true, which is that fascism is fundamentally a reactionary, anti-communist, anti-socialist movement. And it makes sense that fascism would emerge first in Italy because before the First World War, all over Europe, you have vibrant socialist movements. After the First World War, you have one, of course, major country that has a communist government. We can go round and round about, you know, what the Bolsheviks offered or failed to offer the world or in what ways Stalinism was in some ways just as bad as fascism. But coming out of that into the 20s and the 30s, more than any other country, Italy had always had lots of socialists, but Italy had more communists than any other country besides, say, you know, the Soviet Union uh, leading into the Second World War. And that's, that's precisely why the fascists emerged there. And it's similar, similar to the way that the Weimar Republic in Germany 
which is a sort of coalition between social democrats and liberals ends up degenerating into the Nazis. It's because the liberals sell out the social democrats because they're scared. They're scared of the idea that the bourgeoisie might have to give up some of its power and some of its capital. They're scared in that same way that the American Democratic Party, you know, would say that like Bernie Sanders calling for something that many, many countries have already, you know, confronted, something that's quite obvious to us in this era right now, is more of a threat than anything else and that you want to stay safe and go with, go with Joe. This is Frank in post. Please remember that these were recorded actually during the Wisconsin primary period. Obviously, now they're being released on the eve of the general election, so the political context is somewhat different, though the analysis still rings true for reasons which sadly are obvious. So what happens at the end? Well, we've seen how the communists do their politics, even down to things that don't age well, even down to Bertolucci putting in there like the dumbass kid with a rifle doesn't know what he's doing, yelling, you know, long live Stalin. Like in 1976, Bertolucci knows that doesn't age well. But again, it's what it would have looked like on the ground. It's kid who hasn't read a communist book in his life just being like the socialists, they're our guys. Stalin, he's our guy. Long live Stalin. It doesn't look good but it makes sense. And again, Alfredo Berlingeri might himself be a nice guy and all, but you know, within the class structure, he is the exploiter, he's the patrone. And so they take him to the trial and they read him his crimes. His crimes, his father's crimes, his grandfather's crimes, the crimes of the whole system compounded onto him, whether he wanted to be there or not, whether he wanted to be that guy or not, he didn't walk away from it. He didn't send Attila away, even if he would have fired Attila, so that he didn't literally have a fascist running his operation. Even if he would have done that, he still would have been an exploiter by definition. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he was too chicken shit to do that was like, well, okay, you can't like get in bed with the fascists and like say, well, here's a wall of pillows between me and the fascists. I'm not a fascist, even though I lie in this bed. <laughs> <laughs> you can't walk out of one meeting in a church which is again, showing where the bread is buttered, that the fascists make this deal with the church. They make this deal with the ruling class and something that initially it might not have been obvious that it was gonna be such a right-wing reactionary thing. Maybe initially it might've seemed like a more nebulous populist thing. And you see right-wing unionist movements like syndicalists getting on board with fascism early on, not all that different from the way that we see working class support for Trumpism, right? Not, not necessarily different from the way that we see like convergences between Trump's, uh, say, skepticism of foreign trade with someone like Bernie Sanders, who's been against NAFTA since the 90s. For the Trumpists, we can say that's like a selling point. That's not like a, like a sustained critique. You say something in one or two election cycles that's different than fighting for it since the 90s. By the time the fascists are in power, the fascists are the military militant wing of capitalist power and of militarism and it's all compounded down on itself love of the machine that love of the military that love of capital that the church it's all one block of this is the power and then everybody else is underneath it the peasants the workers whatnot i'm going to drop another comment here in post just to make it clear that i'm not playing ball with the so-called economic anxiety argument 
by noting that the fascists did have some degree of working class support and by noting that we see this in Trumpism, for example, as well, I'm not suggesting that it is, at its core, a working class movement. Instead, this is actually meant to illustrate the ways that fascism is, at its heart, a bourgeois ideology to prop up capitalism through developing alliances between the military, the church, the existing capitalist hierarchy, and then offering a few special crumbs to certain privileged sectors within the working class. And we see that very clearly in a character like Attila. So we see these noble socialist peasants, and to be fair, it is a melodrama, right? But we see the socialist peasants who've been fighting the good fight for the past 45 years, who were socialists all along, who were on the right side of history all along. You know, we even see the guy who's arrested and he says, God damn the king. <laughs> That's back in the First World War. He's already getting a sense of this is where it's going. And it goes there faster in Italy than it does in any other country from what happens in the First World War to let's run the whole country like it's an army. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to explain fascism in the stupidest possible way, that's oh, kind of yeah. let's yeah. run the whole country like an army. <laughs> yeah. Take someone who knows nothing about it. That's the definition we use. <laughs> So we see the people who fought the good fight, the people who buried their red flags in the ground when the party was declared illegal. They take it out. They run the trial. They decide because Olmo is weak, because Olmo has a heart in his chest and has seen enough suffering and has seen enough death and has known Alfredo since Alfredo was a child. And Alfredo doesn't give a shit about him because Alfredo doesn't give a shit about any of his friends. The thing is that Olmo probably doesn't even think of Alfredo as his friend, but he still is like, well, whatever. I don't want to kill the guy. Alfredo 100% thinks Olmo is his friend and like also doesn't give a shit about his friends. That's like the class distinction. So Olmo gives this speech. Do you remember the conclusion of the speech? No. The Patrone is dead, so you don't have to kill him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if we can conceptually kill the idea of the Patrone, then we don't have to kill this literal person. He basically argues for his friend's life, or his acquaintance's life, for his mm -hmm. Patrone's life, but for his life as Alfredo Bellingeri, not as the Patrone. Presuming that in the future, they're going to run this farm communally, presuming that in the future, Italy is going to be some sort of socialist country. They're literally running around with red flags saying, you mm -hmm. know, long live Stalin. It's not clear what the rest of history is going to look like for them. And remember, in places like East Berlin, that's what happened. In places like East Berlin, the Red Army rolled in, not without causing a lot of suffering for sure, but they made East Germany, they made Czechoslovakia into Soviet socialist republics. And um, again, this is under Stalinism, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about how great that is because, yeah, it wasn't great, but it was communist. There were certain things that you wouldn't have to worry about, even if there were a lot of other things that you did. I think they think that they're founding a workers' republic at this moment. I think that they think that they're taking over. And then in sweeps the committee, right? These dudes in, in cars. And I love this because it's such a distant notion of what the government would look like. And it's especially useful in a, in a time like 1945, when you've gone through the fascist regime, you've gone through, I think it's called the Italian Social Republic, which is like this puppet government that Mussolini runs in Northern Italy toward the tail end, but it's basically German soldiers telling people what to do. And then Italy's going to reconstitute itself under some other kind of government. And they want to call it a workers' government. 
but it's the Committee of National Liberation. And you remember they read all the list of all the parties that are involved in this. Mm -hmm. So it's like the communists and the socialists and the liberals and the social democrats. And it's that myth of liberalism that I said at the beginning, that myth that, that liberalism will save you from fascism because we have all these parties working together against the fascists. When all those motherfuckers hung these peasants out to dry since 1922, because they decided that they could play ball with the fascists like they were some other normal party. Because mm -hmm. the thing is, if your ideology is, we have many people at the table, then like you get the one person at the table who's insisting on, I have the right to punch this guy next to me in the eye. It would almost drive you to put on a mask and get a baseball bat and go out into the streets and be like, no, fuck off, you're not in my town. They literally take their guns away. It's not the socialists taking away the guns, right? As we'd hear in, in the classic right-wing rhetoric. No, it's the straight up liberals taking the guns. It's the liberals taking the guns because the liberals honestly have just as much to fear from the socialists as they have to fear from the fascists. Mm -hmm. right? It's the thing that Bernie Sanders could never admit to, which is that why did you make this or that bad vote on gun control? Because the socialists need guns too, because ultimately what happens when you have a whole cavalry unit ready to charge at your house? And like, you got a bunch of dudes in sticks, a bunch of dudes carrying sticks. And <laughs> then the women are like, well, we'll lay down. So you got like some combination of passive resistance and like, well, I guess you will beat you with sticks if you run over the women. The old school Italian cavalry are, are willing to be like, we're not going to go to that place. But the fascists don't give a shit. Like, you need a gun for the fascists. I'm not going to sit here and yammer on about how much I love guns because I don't. <laughs> but but you see what I'm getting at. The tail end of that movie is sort of the tragedy of the end of the war, which is that the people endured and a government that's created out of that endurance of the people is actually kind of a bastardization of what happened. Italy is kind of unique in this way. It's, it's different than Germany, which Germany is like fucking stupid stomped into little pieces by the Soviet and American and British armies. Italy still gets to, in large part, liberate itself from the fascists. But the government that gets set up calls itself a workers' government and is ultimately trying to decide that for the next 50 years or so. And even in the 70s, when Bertolucci is making this movie, there are still terrorist attacks between uh, lingering fascist elements and communist elements. Like I said, they went through some ridiculous number of governments. You know, if you have a parliamentary system, you go to a new government anytime that you get enough people to stand in one room together and call a motherfucker a motherfucker. So, <laughs> <laughs> Ta -da, now we have a new one. That's what they call a no confidence vote. Yeah. They roll out with the guns and then Robert De Niro as Alfredo Bertolucci, because he's a fucking moron, says right to Olmo's face that Padrone is alive. How does he not get punched? So what do you think about what happens then? I think he should have phrased it differently so he didn't seem like as much of a dick. This is the guy who at the beginning of the movie was like, I own you. Yeah, true. <laughs> but he's Learned like, nothing. He should have said it like, but the Padrone is alive.
because that's how I read it. Like, as I was reading the summary, because, like, it was kind of confusing for me at bits, and I just eventually just ended up reading the rest of it. And that's how I read it, and I was like, okay, that makes sense, but the way, no. But we're also talking about Alfredo, the, I own you. Alfredo, the, here's all the money in my pockets, will you please fuck me and my friend? (laughs) (laughs) And then after, he doesn't even give her a shred of dignity. He's just like, well, I saw an epileptic today. That's it. Never mind that I I paid her possibly for a three-way. That's just irrelevant. Oh, that didn't come off. That's just money thrown in the trash. She's for me, yes. The war is over. It's that return to normalcy, right? We see this what are we going to call this, Bidenism now? Ugh. It's also what we see at the end of a lot of these big wars, which is like, I assure you, nothing has changed at all. It's what we see in the collapse of Reconstruction in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. If you thought that this was going to lead to some bigger liberation and solving the problems that caused the war, you were wrong because there is this centrist middle class that is scared by that. What did you think of the sort of weird, like dragging each other around and fighting in the square and then going out into the field and all that? You clearly didn't like it. Is it bad filmmaking or is it bad politics? I think it's both. Beyond the obvious, okay, that's cheesy. That's a huge block of cheese. And why would you take the easy way out? I think how you were mentioning the periods of return to normalcy and things like that. I think... That's Bertolucci's attempt to like slap a bumper sticker on it and call it good. There we go. I mean, but in a certain way, it's an impossible movie to end then, I guess, right? Well, exactly. I mean, and that's kind of the point I was getting to is there is really no end. Their return to normalcy can never be just because of all the things that have happened, especially if we compare it to the periods of reform or failed reform that have tried to make progress and then you just get back to a place of normalcy, but it's really, it's not normalcy. It's okay, well, we're shattered into bits and we're fractured, but I guess this is how life is. It's kind of bleak, actually. What's normal for the peasants was not really anything worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. They were always trying to fight for something better. The return to normalcy only appeals to people who are comfortable in what was normal. And that was not them. I think that in this last sequence that Bertolucci wants us to see like some like sort of symbolic continuation of the class struggle. It's ham-fisted. Mm-hmm. You got your ham, you got your cheese. Eat it whether you, you like it or not. Keep in mind that like in Italy it was it was a struggle for, I mean, I don't know how long. Certainly there was a peak in the 70s. They called the 70s the years of lead, which is to say like lead as in bullets. So they had a sort of low simmer quasi civil war, like never really like full on, but sort of more honestly not unlike what we see in the US now where it's like you kind of got to keep an eye out to like, well, is, is like some weird militant militia group going to try and bomb something you know that kind of a thing and i don't even think they literally had people marching around the street with guns because i do think they had more more restrictive gun laws than we have i mean almost every country does i think he's trying to represent that symbolically i mean at the end we get that obvious like return that circle where he lays on the tracks and he lays on the tracks of course 
perpendicular so he's committing suicide like his grandfather did and then remembering the time that he laid down when the strike train passed over him and i don't know maybe his grandfather knew that the system was wrong in a way that he couldn't admit well maybe his um his final crime against the milkmaid just pushed it over the edge and like we talked about before maybe all the flaws just you know compounded onto each other The people who make these movies, Bertolucci himself called himself a mm-hmm. Marxist. And as I said, the Communist Party was super popular in Italy up until the Second World War and then afterwards as well. The first person I ever met who called himself a communist was an Italian. Oh, no. Long stories about my childhood. Part three. Yeah, do it. My, my oh. mom ran an Italian exchange program out of her mm-hmm. high school. She was a social studies teacher, not an Italian teacher, but she learned enough Italian to get by. And mm-hmm. so we'd frequently have either one of the students or one of the teachers stay with us in the house. And there's a physics teacher who was a communist. He identified as a communist. And it was like not a big deal in his mind. Uh, for the Americans, it was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he was also like the first person I looked up to who smoked cigarettes. He was like the first actual person I knew who smoked cigarettes. So I remember like this time when my sister must have been like 16 years old and that would have made me like 10 she like crashed the car or something and she was like losing her mind in the house i remember standing outside in the driveway and he's smoking a cigarette (laughs) and like looking at the car and being like yeah it's not that bad because like he's an italian so he's probably crashed a few cars (laughs) just like smoking a cigarette with a communist in the in the in the driveway and you know keep in mind i also you know when i was when i was a young young kid was was the cold war still so this is like you know in the 90s it's still like a thing in a way that it is only for old people these days uh (laughs) that like communists and people who smoke cigarettes are bad people well they might not be bad people they're just maybe people with different tastes and different ideas than you i'm not claiming this man made me a socialist that's not the point of this story (laughs) the point of this story is merely that you get exposed to different people and then you think like oh that's possible in ways that Mm -hmm. maybe for other people it's like no that's just like like we use the word terrorist like code word for bad person right Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we then maybe you end up reading marks or something like that later on maybe you end up seeing a movie like bertolucci's 1900 and it's like you don't assume that the socialists are the bad guys so you you see it in a different do these people ever see that they're in the wrong like people who make these movies as i said people who make these movies people who write these books people people like bertolucci people like you who are invested in trying to figure out what goes on in people's heads to have a fascist ideology is almost to like be committed to the idea that like i don't care what goes on in people's heads because i don't care about other people you know the typical trumpist approach to the world is that right that is the fascist Mm -hmm. approach to the world i wonder if like an actual alfredo berlingeri would have that kind of self-critical register to be like no what i've done was a crime and i will kill myself it makes more sense to think of his grandfather being like, I can't get my dick up. Okay. I guess right. there's no reason to live. Like right. that's, that's like closer to home. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly that's a reason why. 
I mean, it doesn't have to be. I, I want it to be any other reason why, but, but honestly, <laughs> it's the best explanation. I mean, there's more. There's more to that. It certainly makes more sense that his grandfather would do it. But if he doesn't even care about his acquaintance, then does he even have the register to admit that sort of thing? I don't know. Those questions you have to ask. There's a scene where he runs into the epileptic woman again. Oh, that's right. Yeah. In the tavern, is it? And awkwardly, it's with Ada. Yeah, it's in the tavern. And she's like, oh, I was fine. Right? (laughs) That's what I took away from that conversation. It's like, oh, yeah, it turned out fine. Like, you you left me naked with a pile of money on the dresser at my moment of great need. But it turned out okay. I was seizing naked, but you're good. Like... (laughs) is that just bad writing or is that telling us something especially in this sort of film nothing is done without thinking except the ending but the simple answer would be it's the good confronting the bad almost in a two-faced fashion he's put so much time and love and care but also not into his relationship with Ada and then his relationship with I don't even know what her name is um, I think she's given a name d- d- she might yeah, be, I don't remember well and that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. that she's not given a name um we see him acting as more hmm, I guess simple in a way and purely animalistic or purely I guess nuanced just the mindset of well this is just another thing I don't care about. And then it ends up playing poorly on the screen. So I guess um, the two confronting each other are just the parts of his life clashing and the parts of himself. I think she tells him what he needs to hear. I think that she's the kind of person who's just been so beaten down that she's just like, whatever, get out of my face. I'll tell you something to, you know, make yourself make you feel better about yourself because you're going to drag this on for long enough to make me say that eventually. I'm struck by the first moment when we see her. Remember, it's with the the dude who had cut his ear off is like doing a juggling routine. And she's just standing there with like a basket full of laundry or something. And she's like staring out into space. Like she's like, like about to collapse from exhaustion. The first time I watched it, I asked myself, is she dead? I know she's standing up, but her face literally looks like a statue, like dead, straight up dead. Yeah. I think she's just someone who's had a hard life and she's just sort of wandering through just trying to make the best of it and that's why she sort of goes along with what alfredo is you know presuming that she's going to do for him uh and that's why she just sort of says what he needs to hear when she runs into him in the tavern later it's like what more do you want from me get off my back kind of like i've already been through enough i don't need anything else and you two have not after what you did i gotta say man that's just straight up rude Thanks for listening to yet another episode of The Pointless Century. I'm Professor Frank Fuchile, and I was joined, as always, by my brave and patient research assistants, Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily.
Our next episode will be our first consideration of paintings. Gustave Moreau versus Cy Twombly. And we will also be welcoming our new sound editor, Madeline McKay. Check out my recent essay in North American Reviews, online outlet Open Space, forthcoming poems in The Locust Review in Poet Lore, and my scholarly article in Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment. Just love the